So good afternoon and welcome to uh, the second to last session of the Crosscut Festival today, How Tech Can Solve Its Diversity Problem. My name is Annika Anand. I'm a co-founder of The Evergrey. We're a daily newsletter run by three women of color in Seattle. We send it out every morning to 7,000 Seattleites um, to let them know what's going on in the city that day. So if you're interested, check it out, sign up for it. It's theevergrey.com, E-V-E-R-G-R-E-Y. And now I would love to introduce you to this awesome panel that we have here today. Um, so first off, we have Zoe Quinn. She was named by Fast Company as the 17th most creative person in business for her work with Crash Override. It is one of the most critically acclaimed uh, books right now. And uh, she is one of the most critically acclaimed indie developers in the gaming industry. So after being at the center of the infamous Gamergate scandal, she has become a leading voice in the fight against online abuse and has testified at the United Nations on the subject. Zoe will be signing her book Crash Override in the lobby after this panel, so be sure to check that out. We also have David Harris. He is the startup advocate for the city of Seattle's Office of Economic Development. He helps lead the tech hire initiative for our region, and it connects the uh, women and minorities with training and jobs in the tech industry. Our final panelist is Susie Lee. She founded the dating app Siren, which won GeekWire's 2015 App of the Year. And the idea behind the app is to empower women and change the tone of online dating. She received accolades from the Seattle Times, CNN, NPR, Marie Claire, and the Washington Post. And her artwork has been collected by numerous museums and private collections. Finally, we have our moderator, Ruchika Tulshan. She's the author of The Diversity Advantage, Fixing Gender Inequality in the Workplace. She's also the founder of Candor, an inclusion strategy and communications firm. So let's give them all a round of applause. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for being here with us. Um, I wanted to start off the panel and just uh, actually thank our panelists because uh, the emotional labor and um, trauma in, in, in some ways of work doing this work of talking about diversity and inclusion and uh, exclusion is actually really hard work. It's a lot easier to talk about innovation and technology and the forefront of, of the world and uh, a lot harder to actually talk about these subjects. <clears throat> so thank you so much for doing uh, the hard work. Um, with that, Zoe, I wanted to start with you. I don't want to rehash, um, you know, the the awful, awful um, harassment that you faced. Um, there is a book for it, and I have it in my hands, and uh, obviously you're signing afterwards. But how is the harassment that you did face um, inform your assessment of the diversity challenges that we see here in technology? and um, what really needs to change? Uh, I guess in a weird way, um, because what happened to me had become so high profile, um, it got me talking with a lot of other people that have been through um, either similar or the same thing. Uh, and just seeing just structurally how there are mechanisms at play here that encourage this sort of abuse to take place across a variety of different platforms, social media, online and offline, all of these things, um, and the different challenges that people face uh, intersectionally as well, um, really kind of made me start thinking about everything as a, from a holistic way. Like one of the things that I've noticed with, you know, with Crash I'd gone and worked with 
almost every big name in tech uh, to try to talk to them about these issues. And most of the time, it would be like, oh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna care about this because it's a hot button issue. We're gonna have one meeting, invite some people, and then never address it again. Um, or we're going to have one meeting every year, listen to the same people say the same five things, and then never actually listen again. Because it's that whole just because they're talking to you doesn't mean they're actually listening to what you're saying thing. Um, but, you know, like it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, I had a whole book to try to discuss these sorts of things, and it's still hard for me to get across, I think, the enormity and the asymmetry uh, that goes on when you're one person and you're in a structure that hates you. Um, and it's just the amount of like even busy work that it takes up that I think a lot of people don't realize. It's like, oh, just report, and it's like a lot of the institutions that are ostensibly responsible for trying to help or protect you don't actually care about you or are actively disincentivized from caring about you and all of these like very clear potholes um, that I think anybody that's experienced this sorts of thing um, have in common uh, to, to different extents. Um, so you know, like just that insight uh, and seeing it as more of like not just isolated to any one platform or any one specific thing, but more of like an all-encompassing, you know, if you've got, it's like that, um, if you give a million monkeys, a million typewriters, they'll eventually, uh, eventually write Shakespeare. It's like, if you give a million random people on the internet uh, a life, they will figure out every single weak point in it. Um, and finding out what my own weak points were was uh, something that was very highlight, highlight for me. Um, another thing is just like the lack of privacy that we actually do have, because you don't feel your data, so you don't really think about where it is, and that, you know, data is very readily un like available and unregulated, and we're not encouraged to think about it. Like, how many times have you signed up for a service that was free, seen this very long page with a scroll bar, and just hit I accept? I'm not reading that. That's basically saying, hey, we can buy and sell your information, and then trying to remove it can becomes almost impossible. Like. Um, I was actually locking someone down last night and I had to create a burner phone number because the process had evolved to like here, uh, link your listing, okay, but then also give us an email confirmation, okay, now also give us a number to call, okay, and when we get, we get that number, we're going to make you enter this four-digit code on that phone number and then we'll remove this, this data that we obtained without your consent or informing you. And I don't think people know about that entire industry. Um, so that's something I've been trying to really even draw attention to, but the thing that's... Uh, the positive thing I've noticed is how community-driven uh, initiatives and how empowering people to be there in their own communities for, e for each other going through this has had way more of an ef effect on like actually moving, making people's lives better rather than waiting for people in power to suddenly care about us. Right, absolutely. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, Susie, one thing that I would, um, you know, I'd love to talk to you about is you, your tech company launched a dating app that really was trying to change the way that dating would be for women um, and really put the power in their hands. Uh, it was doing exceedingly well. Um, and on top of that, you were blazing trails as a very successful uh, female entrepreneur of color. Um, and then things started to unravel. Um, what did that show you about the tech industry for women and for women of color especially? Um, so I came from the art world, which has its own problems, but there's a lot of similarities in the sense that, um, you know, you kind of believe that if you work hard and, and, and sort of put your dues in, that you will come out and sort of be a winner. And so you, um, this idea of a meritocracy was something that I thought the tech world really embraced. Um, and that was something that I found not to be true at every step of the way. Um, that when you talked to... Um, 
the straight white men in the group, they were like, well, I worked hard, and therefore this is why I got the thing that I got. Um, if you work hard, you should be able to do the same thing. Um, and, you know, I would be able to track exactly the kind of things that we would do, whether it was pitching to investors or, you know, uh, asking, you know, communities for certain kind of help or advisors or mentors to do, you know, certain things for us. And it always came down to um, feeling like they perceived me very differently because I was a woman and a woman of color. Also, even weird things like because I was short, they could get away with calling me like, um, like you're just a pint of something. Um, and I actually had an investor say that, and I was like, there's got to be a camera somewhere here. <laughs> um, so that happened very quickly from when we launched the site. And, you know, I kept thinking, well, if we hit certain numbers, then maybe the numbers are neutral and not um, biased. So therefore, that's how we're going to try and create a certain kind of success and evade this, like, implicit sort of face-to-face -face bias. But even then, it was like, well, the numbers were never good enough. And the numbers were never high enough. And even though you could point to some other guy's company from a 22-year-old that was like, well, he had no numbers at all, um, it didn't matter, right? Like, somehow, there was always a way to say, uh, you know, you you as a woman and you as someone who's not part of the, the, the inner boys club are not good enough. Gosh, that is really, really concerning. Also added to data that only 2% of venture capital funds last year went to female-founded companies. So we're talking about 98% of venture funding um, going to, to male startups, right? And that's really concerning. Um, but... Maybe uh, by having discussions like these, open conversations like these, we'll start to see some changes. Uh, I know all three of you are doing um, incredible work to, do, uh, to change. Um, David, you know, Seattle is so known for our startup, for our innovation, um, but not so much our diversity and inclusion. Um, what's worked in the work that you do to make tech more diverse and inclusive? Yeah, well, um, I think what's worked for me is that uh, I understand that I'm not um, the first person and I'm not the only person doing this work. I've learned from many trailblazers and pioneers before me, um, people like Trista Zico, uh, who have not just been talking about this for the past five years, but past over 20 years. Um, and just a sidebar, you can, kind of, you can imagine um, someone that's dedicated decades um, to this type of work um, and, and now really starting to see more conversations, but still not seeing any, uh, you know, a lot of progress, uh, it gets hard. But I think um, that is a part of the work, um, really understanding that, you know, in our lifetimes we might not see uh, change, but uh, we think about, you know, future generations and um, we think about the things that we do today uh, that will have an impact, um, you know, decades, uh, if not more later. Uh, so with that being said, um, really understanding, uh, like you said, holistically and, um, and looking at the systems that are in place, uh, especially uh, with my work working at the city, um, looking at how we can move barriers uh, and obstacles um, on a uh, systemic level, uh, but also um, it, it's really about relationships. Um, as, as much as we look um, top down, um, 
a lot of my work is about relationships and um, understanding that uh, if, if I meet with an entrepreneur um, uh, who, um, matter of fact, I met with an entrepreneur from uh, Somali, Somalia, and uh, he has a remittance um, startup, and he's competing with other companies that are very similar um, and, you know, keeps getting the closed doors. But being able to um, understand his story and uh, being able to connect him with um, uh, with people that, that are looking to help, um, it, it means a lot to him and it means a lot to me personally uh, to, to be able to be in a position to, to make those connections. But again, um, really thinking about uh, the the systems that are in place, um, and not even just the individuals that, you know, might be a hindrance to, to progress, um, is really important as well. Absolutely, and actually, one of the concerns in a lot of the research I've uh, done is is just the reality of how many decisions we make based on, um, you know, wanting to uplift people who look like us, right? So whether I don't want to fund your company, you know, whether it's I want to make your life hell whether it's, um, you know, I don't want to give you a job, and at its very fundamental base level, it's that belief that people who look different from me um, aren't worth investing in, in whatever uh, way, right? And it's about disrupting that natural tendency, you know, and um, for too long, we've let it continue, right? Again, if we look at the 2% statistic, um, it's, it's really hard to explain it in any other way. Um, Zoe, where should we start? Where should we start to disrupt some of these tendencies that we seem um, uh, that we seem to kind of say that this is the reason why uh, we're letting harassment, we're letting uh, exclusion continue within the tech industry? Where do we start to change that? It's tricky because there's it's like such there's there's so many uh, like you said systems just kind of knit together there. Um, and addressing like bad actors specifically doesn't, you know, really move much of a needle because people get replaced. And uh, it's a uh, something that I've seen too is um, maybe looking at people who are getting promoted too because like I've seen a couple different diversity diversity initiatives where it's like let's just hire people and then they don't address the actual work environment once they get there. It's like oh wow those people left like almost immediately because they could not do their job because there, it was such a hostile environment. It's like, who's actually being promoted? Um, who's actually in charge of things? Um, who's actually making decisions versus like um, a company being able to say, hey, we made a number go up where we you know, threw more marginalized people at the problem and called it a day. And it's like, okay, well, not only does that offload all of the work of trying to fix your company to the people that are the most likely to experience uh, the brunt end of this, um, it's, you're not looking at who you're maintaining, so that's difficult. Um, but similarly, uh, like with relationships, I've seen like the, the, the sort of grassroots community initiatives that, uh, that grow, I think just naturally, because you know, if you're dealing with this and you talk to someone else dealing with this, community can very easily grow out of that. And then people having each other's backs has been really cool. And then um, and as t taking that a step further and to build coalitions between communities of different identities where it's like, you know, sharing notes and like, because there's so many people that are, you know, again, bringing it back to intersectionality, there's so many people that are this and this and this. So it's like building these networks of people who are 
facing different challenges and you know not trying to say oh we're all the same or anything like that and letting people have ownership over their spaces while also figuring out ways where we can work together uh, to sort of tackle it as a united front uh, enough in some regards or for specific things without trying to you know erase uh, the different challenges that people of different identities face um, seems like a really good way forward uh, at least for you know a push and I think um, unfortunately, especially with the, the larger a tech company is, uh, I think we need to start really c being okay with saying that a lot of the call is coming from inside of the, the house. Um, there's definitely people at in power positions of very powerful roles at, at very big companies that make a lot of decisions that are absolutely part of the problem, and I'm not sure how, how to address that part. Um, and similarly, just getting people who would be uh, you know, comrades and facing this problem to be willing to actually do stuff and not just offloading all of the work onto minorities and women and other marginalized identities and like teaching or having good resources for ally work to be done um, is, is super important instead of, you know, the frequently unhelpful, I'm just going to apologize and prostrate myself and say like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for my race or I'm sorry for my gender. It's like, that's not really helpful. What could help is if you talk to the people that will listen to you because they, uh, you, they look, uh, you look like them. Uh, and you know, like if I go talk to them, I don't look like them, but if they'll, they'll listen to you because you look like them. So go and talk to your friends. And I know it sucks and I know it's uncomfortable, but that's how you can help. Don't, don't keep apologizing to me because that's not useful. <laughs> Yeah, engaging allies, absolutely. Um, would any of you like to talk about the Me Too movement and um, its impact? Susie, I see you doing this. Do you, do you have thoughts on whether that could make a change and disrupt some of the, the things that we was just talking about? Um, well, I think that what you see in the media about Me Too is high profile um, individuals getting knocked down. Um, and everyone pointing to those high-profile individuals and thinking like, ah, if we just clean house of those individuals, problem's going to be solved and yay, right? And I mean, you know, we also had that kind of on the flip side saying like, you know, if Obama's president, then obviously we must be in a post-race society, right? Like we have these individuals <laughs> who somehow we've then solved the problem because those are in those have been done. But we know that these problems, of course, are systemic and they happen at every single level. Um, and so these reckonings have to happen over and over and over again and at multiple different levels at the same time. Um, I think that what I found interesting in the, in the tech world, especially as a woman, was that there would be a number of men who would come to me and say, we know it's awful and I'm so sorry. And I was like, don't apologize to me. I don't do that, right? Lean into, you know, don't ask me to lean in like Sheryl Sandberg to, to work harder. Like, how about you lean into a little bit more of that discomfort that you feel about calling someone out that's doing something inappropriate when I'm not there, actually. So you're not asking to be a hero in front of me. You're actually just doing your job of trying to correct the system. Um, and it's hard. Like, even with my partner who used to have, like, a handlebar mustache, and um, all these dudes were like, oh, man, dude, you shaved the mustache off, right? Because, like, that's a part of mas masculinity and blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, why don't you tell them that you'll grow the mustache back if they actually help in the fight to take down the patriarchy? <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't do it, right? Like, that's the problem is, like, I said this half as a joke, but half in reality, 
And even someone who cares for me and absolutely sees at the ground level what's happening realize that he can't turn to his guy friends and actually say that or his customers and that sort of thing. And that to me is like, that's where we have to pause and say, where can we actually make that change? Patriarchy hurts both men and women, yeah. right? It's yeah. really hard. Um, David, what, what's it like talking about equity and inclusion in politics today? Yeah, um, well, I try to uh, stay positive and think about you know what the kind of conversations we were having 10 years ago, five years ago, and today. And now we are talking about diversity and we are talking about equity and inclusion, and my hope and uh, where my positive thinking comes in is that um, we'll start talking more about power, um, and that will be a, a, a term that we are including in our everyday lexicon. Um, that is hopeful, and, and to really start to, to move the needle where we see that uh, conversations and um, things that address diversity as a whole aren't moving the needle at all. Um, they, you can't write you know, policy that sticks around that. Um, and inclusion as well, um, that still does not address the, I think one of the, the key issues and that is um, uh, power and agency um, and giving people uh, the, the power to um, write their own um, kind of ticket. So that's, that's kind of my, my thinking and um, what I've seen and I'm, I'm hoping that uh, our conversations move more that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have our first female mayor in, uh, you know, 100 years or so, uh, more than that. So really, really incredible to, to see changes uh, made in that way. Um, Zoe, I wanted to come back to this, this um, thought that you said that it's really hard to capture how profound and difficult and challenging the experience you had, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, so I just wanted to get a temperature within the room. How many of you have ever been called something online that actually made you scared? You know, a, a word or, or a phrase or um, in a comment or something like that on social media? Um, yeah, it's, 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 largely, it's largely women I see here uh, raising their hands. I see, a, I see a gentleman in the front, but I see mostly women, and um, I, think it's, I think it's hard to capture um, how difficult and profound that experience is, and then how many of us then just have to keep on moving with it, right? I, I've, as a journalist, I've been called so many things, and then you just continue writing, right? Because that's your platform, and, and same with you, Zoe. It sounded like, as I was reading your book, you had this choice, right? Do I go into hiding? Do I just... Um, you know, really, really just pull myself off the grid or do I continue living my life? And there's this choice that so many of us have to keep making um, every day. Um, so, so I wanted to ask you, what was your big takeaway from this experience? What was, if you could go back um, and tell yourself to prepare for what was coming, what would you have said? I don't know that you fully can. Um, and, you know, I've seen that with, with my work with Crash when people have come to me preemptively because they're about to, um, I don't know, start not 
it, it's a misnomer to say like living in the public eye or doing art in the public eye because it's like still very much not like someone going out and like running for office. It's like, oh, I'm about to put my art on Twitter uh, and I'm, a, I'm like not the kind of person that, you know, I, I'm, I'm from one or several backgrounds that have a whole built-in community, so many built-in communities, they're ready to yell at me. Um, you know, what do I do? And it's like, ev even then, like, it's hard to fully prepare. Um, I guess, like, a big takeaway for me is just, like, how, how powerful it is to really kind of see yourself as something bigger um, and, as and, like, really seek out that community, f um, not just for, and, and, like, to look at community, when I say community, I mean, like, not in the, I have something in common with someone, with these other people, but like community as a thing you do. Like community is like checking in on people, is like if someone who you know, uh, like, like knowing your neighbor more or less, whether that's like a neighbor quite physically or a neighbor metaphorically, like someone that has an interest or a colleague and like really trying to build those ties so that when, some, like when something goes wrong, uh, they have your back. If something goes wrong with them, you have their back and I, can't overstate how much tying your own success to the success of your of that those communities that you build makes everything so much more meaningful and that's one thing that has kept me going above and beyond all else is that it's not you know uh, I don't see myself as just me I stand on the shoulders of giants I want to help you know I, I got I got broad shoulders I want to help carry some people as much as I can too and uh, you know, I, I don't know how much I would do differently other than there's just some stuff I was in the dark about. I engaged too many bad faith actors without realizing um, there was maybe a little bit of naivete, but I grew up on the internet. It's not the first time I've seen something like this happen and still I was caught off guard. And to take like digital privacy seriously uh, is such a huge thing, um, but I understand why people don't get into it. It's like, if you're not already familiar with stuff, it's like Star Trek jargon <laughs> to most people. Um, so trying to figure out a way to make that accessible is a huge thing, just the accessibility of tech, and I don't know. Um, I guess I'm still extremely hopeful about the internet in, in spite of all this. Like, uh, it saved my life a number of times. I grew up very isolated in a small rural community where I had depression and was queer and couldn't talk to anybody, and I don't think I would have been here if I wasn't able to find that community online. Um, so, and, and even now, like, I, I the, the internet has given me my career. Um, I wouldn't be able to do my weird comedy stuff uh, <laughs> like anywhere else, I think. Um, and I really love the people that I've been able to meet through that. So um, I don't know, that's, there's so many takeaways, it's hard to like nail it down. <laughs> it's like such an overwhelming experience, but I guess my biggest one is, which I've, I've, I kind of already said was, uh, you know, the systems that are in place do not care about us. They're not about to start caring about us. And rather than feeling hopeless and overwhelmed in spite of that, which are totally normal and acceptable feelings, seeing that and saying, well, we shouldn't wait for that. We don't have to wait for that. We can do what we can do for each other now instead of just seeing it as that. Yeah, I wanted to jump on the point of, of uh, bad faith actors because doesn't everyone just want to engage with you in a very, <laughs> I, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about conversation. We d I disagree, you disagree. We're just we're just out to have a conversation, right? Or no? <laughs> I'm not really sure what uh, opinion my posting my dad's home address or nude photos of me is expressing. 
And I've had to say that exact thing to Twitter when they were like, oh, th you know, this is just a, this is, we don't want to ban people for their opinion. I'm like, I didn't know my dad's home address was an opinion. What is, what statement is being made there? <laughs> yeah, and we're talking about huge companies. We're talking about Twitter, we're talking about Facebook, we're not talking about geeks, um, you know, sitting behind, a, a, you know, anonymous uh, wall or, or screen or whatever, right? We're talking about big companies making these decisions for you. Yeah, and beyond that, right. like, anonymity is really not the problem. Anonymity lets a lot of marginalized people have privacy when they need it. Um, and many people uh, did what they did, in my case, under their own name, and they built a brand off of it, and they monetized it, and they had YouTube revenue, and they'd go on these long tirades about, like, how terrible of a human I must have been. I'm not gonna use the language that they use, but, um, and then at the end, like very like rah, and like a two minutes hate 1984 style content, and then be like, oh, uh, also please like, fave, and subscribe. My merch page is here. <laughs> and seeing the fact that that sort of thing has been monetized and encouraged, and you know uses the internet's economy of attention to prop itself up and game these systems and all of that, um, and realizing that you know there are a lot of bad faith actors out there. It's not this like open free marketplace of ideas. It's that the more and more aggressive and we shouldn't cede the internet to people who yell the loudest and are the worst to other people. Right, both in real life and in online life, it seems. Um, Susie, how do we um, find our allies? You know, you, you talked about allyship when you mentioned your partner. Um, how do we seek them out, especially if you're from an underrepresented community in tech? How do, you, how do you go about that? Not saying that the onus is on us to solve right. the problem, right. but we obviously and benefit from We that. benefit <laughs> from that, so. Um, well, I think technology, you know, as we all know, is very binary, right? And it's, it, it tends to be something that favors polarizing as opposed to nuance. And when we talk about community, I think the community is something that can actually help reinforce this idea that these conversations are not you know, this or that, or you're right and I'm wrong, or, um, and it's not just like you do one thing and then everything is done. Um, this idea that there are iterations um, and that you can, you know, when we say move the needle, it's not like we go from this all the way to that, right? We're just saying, eh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that visualization oftentimes helps me when I think about allies is that, you know, the first conversation, you know, as David said, it's like, that might not do anything, right? But as long as they didn't leave the room, we win, right? And then that next conversation, then we start to talk about, you know, maybe how we feel about something, right? And then maybe they ask a question the third time. Um, you know, I think that that's a way to think about allyship so that we don't shut down people so quickly and start to shut down the conversations before they've even had a chance to empathize. Um, and I think that when I think about how to navigate the tech world now, it's actually to say, um, how do we amplify that empathy? Um, and I'm not always sure that the answers are there, but it's always about just nudging things forward um, <laughs> and just making sure you stay your ground, right? So you don't keep falling backwards. Um, so I think that's the strategy. Yeah, makes sense. And, and David, as a startup advocate, what's at stake if tech does not realize its diversity and inclusion problem? Um, I think it's an interesting question because what's at stake is what we're missing out on right now. Um, we, 
you know, we're comfortable with how things are, but I don't think we really realize um, the the ideas, the what um, people are not able to bring to the world um, because we're not uh, we're, we're not giving them a shot. We're not um, empathizing. Um, so it it it's a interesting question because um, we're not mad enough right now. We're not. We don't feel it. And um, the people that are working extra hard, um, I think they're going to do what they've continued to do, and that's going to um, that's um, continuing to beat down doors. And if if it doesn't work for them, hopefully it'll work for someone else. And that's a not a, a rosy picture, but that's that's kind of that's the work, and that's that's what we do um, to really think about. Um, hey. It might not work out for me right now, um, but I think what I learned I can share, um, and I can I can help uh, help others. Um, with that being said, I, I do think um, progress is being made um, iteratively, and we we do see people that get it. We do see I think I am starting to see a, a sea change um, of people realizing um, what they're missing out on, and that. Uh, they too might be biased, and uh, and they're they're looking for for solutions, and I think that's a good start. Um, and we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very hopeful. Um, one one of the moments in my life that I was really, um, you know, where I felt like yes, progress is being made is there's an amazing startup entrepreneur in in Seattle um, who you know who is who is white and male and he sold his company to like Google and whatnot and and um, he now refuses to talk on panels unless there's at least one woman a person of color on it and he has actually stopped mentoring um, you know these incubators and things like that that. Um, that don't have diverse uh, startup cohorts. So, really, you know, using his privilege for good, and I'm and I'm I'm really really excited when I see um, those sorts of actions um, being made. So I, I we're right um, at our last ten minutes or so. Um, what would you like the audience in this room to leave knowing? And I'd like to ask that to each of you, and I'll start with Zoe. Um, not to hammer too hard on it, but the, the not waiting for someone else to come fix the problem and to learn what you can do and, and figure out what you can do in your immediate vicinity, even even if it might not feel like much, uh, it can mean all the world to somebody. Even just not knowing, what, if, if, you, if you don't know what to do, just even being available and getting better at listening um, is such a huge thing. Um, beyond that too, uh, seeing, not just caring about people who are, uh, like marginalized for the sake of, like not saying like consuming basically all of the stuff about, oh, these, these, there's so many problems here, um, but also showing up for the work that people do, that we're not so hyper fixated on, you know, what happens to us, uh, that we forget what cool things we do about it and what, who we are as people outside of, and creators and business owners and entrepreneurs and artists outside of just the struggles we face and caring about more than just the struggle and the, uh, and care, like, ideally, maybe it's too optimistic, but I'm there, um, moving past just seeing the path from, the path to survival and trying to shoot for not just surviving, but thriving on top of that. 
Are there any resources within the gaming industry that you recommend um, people should should turn to, you know, if they're facing some of the challenges you did? I, your book has really, really, um, you know, been a real eye-opener for me so far. I've gone about halfway through. Um, but apart from your book, are there websites, are there, are there other resources you recommend that helped you? Um, there's there's a lot of resources out there, maybe not really gaming related because this is an every everywhere problem um, that that do really good work, especially as it pertains to non-consensual intimate imagery. There's the uh, Cyber Civil Rights Initiative that has a whole hotline for like if you're affected by like someone spreading uh, nude photos of you without your consent, they are very specialized in helping people with that. Um, there's the Coral Project, which uh, is headed up by Sadat Harry, who's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. Uh, she's working to make comment sections better, which is like such a Herculean task. And I admire her. I admire her uh, dedication to trying to f make discourse uh, in in those spaces uh, productive. Um, we've got. Uh, I think I think they might have changed their name, but they were troll. It was troll hunters or troll busters. Um, she helps journalists specifically um, lock their stuff down. It's very good. Um, there's a number. Um, there's uh, God. There's so many things. I, I just don't want to go through and plug it. Yeah. It's yeah. in the back. Of, there's. It's in the back of my book. I don't know. I can't. <laughs> I, this is why I need to like. I need like a just. I need to take that. Take one of my copies. Rip the page out. Put it in my backpack and be like, okay, here's a list of people doing good work. No, in or short, just buy, buy her, her book. book. <laughs> I'm bad at this. I'm sorry. Actually, you're great at this. I didn't know about any of the resources you just mentioned, so thank you. That I guess was, there's also really a crash helpful. override, but yeah, that that's too. just <laughs> crashovernetwork.org. We have links to all of those people there, yeah. um, and a couple of different guides, including like an interactive lockdown checklist, because we've noticed that you give someone a huge guide to cybersecurity, and they're like, uh, mm -hmm. um, this like gives you like little check marks of progress bar and goes bit by bit by bit. Um, which I use making a game tool, which is weird, but yeah, that might help. That's great, awesome. Um, Susie, what's one thing people within this room can do, read, see, <laughs> to make a change? Um, they can advocate for each other, so I would say, as a female author, yeah, you should buy her book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think when David talks about the sea change, I mean, when you think about that, it means that every molecule matters. And that means that each one of us actually has a certain way that we can start to push things forward. Um, and they don't have to be huge, right? Um, this idea of being able to take whatever it is that you may have that's a privilege. It might be socioeconomic, but you know, maybe you're middle class. Maybe you have a little extra time. Maybe you are male. Maybe, uh, you know, you have an insight to a network that other people don't have. Whatever those things are, if you can start to change the tone of those conversations, right? Like instead of being, you know, that gut of you that says, oh, I should have said something then, and then you don't because you feel like you don't want to be that person. There's actually kind of a, like, <laughs> once I realized that the tech world was like this, I was like, I'm just going to throw these out there and make everyone uncomfortable and it's going to be fine. Um, <laughs> you actually start to enjoy it a little bit and that awkward silence becomes actually a little pleasurable to you. Um, even though everyone else is like shuffling their feet and not making eye contact and you're just like, yeah, right? Um, 
if you do that a little bit more, right, then we all start to push that tone to something that's not just about panelists talking about some things, but that it's really happening everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, so I think each one of us are those molecules to make what David says about the sea change actually happen. David, what about you? What would you like this audience to leave with? Um, one thing that's been kind of eye-opening for me is uh, really looking at the unspoken uh, social contracts that exist and um, really examining um, <laughs> the, how I consent to some of those and how um, others do as well, um, whether that's a racial contract uh, or um, you know, gender. Um, can, you, can you give me a, an example, if you don't mind? Yeah, um, I think there are a lot of organizations that are anti-black, and um, they would never say that explicitly. We would never maybe even think that explicitly. Uh, but when we look at all of the evidence and um, the, uh, the, the, the actions of either organizations um, or systems, um, it, it becomes very explicit. Uh, when you look through that, that kind of lens of um, just the, um, the, the ledger of, of, uh, of actions and, and progress. So um, with that, though, I think um, uh, examining agency and power. So um, for myself, uh, even really looking at the power that I do hold um, and how I relinquish that to others um, and thinking about you know, what that looks like um, you know, a couple levels above me or in other systems that I participate in um, or where I'd like to see uh, power distributed more evenly. Um, but more specifically, I think also just supporting organizations that are, are doing this work, um, like LaunchCode, um, uh, which helps uh, um, individuals get training in, in tech and skills so that they can um, start to to get the jobs that they've been denied or start the businesses and the, the tech startups that um, they might not have. Um, there are a number of other ones. Um, Ada Developers Academy, the software training for women. Um, there's, uh, um, you know, knock on tech stars uh, door and um, ask them why uh, more companies um, um, aren't getting a shot. And they're working on it. Um, but you know, keep, I think we should keep putting that pressure on large organizations, um, even the city, um, and making sure that we are looking through that, that lens of agency and power. Do any of you feel like you're in an episode of Black Mirror? <laughs> <laughs> <I mean>. Always. <laughs> really? <laughs> Zoe? I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day, honestly. Because it's like, oh, didn't I? I already have to have this conversation like six times with different, no, that was a different company, okay. I mean, honestly, that's why I wrote a book. I'm still an engineer at heart, so if I can automate something, I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, all that. <laughs> look at that. It's all there. Please let me go back to making video games. I like writing fiction way more. It's way more fun, yeah. as it turns out. Yeah, I think, I think just bringing it back to what I said in the beginning about, um, you know, the emotional labor, sometimes it's frustrating because all of you do amazing other things rather than have to keep talking about the diversity and tech problems, right? Uh, each of you have these incredible skills and, and there is this time, I'm sure, which it feels exhausting. And then it's about thinking about the community, the impact, right? Giving a platform to these issues for people who may not have 
the platforms that each of you have. And I think, I think that's really at the heart of what we're, what we're doing. Um, well, thank you very, very much for your time. <laughs>